0: Thank you, Bethany. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. Finally, we're going to return to Galatians. Galatians 4. We'll look this morning at verses 21 through 31, the end of the chapter. In case you haven't noticed, the Middle East is in turmoil yet again. Though it's certainly an oversimplification, the Middle East conflict could be described as a conflict conflict between the two sons of abraham the jews trace their lineage back to isaac abraham's son through sarah and the arabs and thus the muslims mostly trace their lineage back to ishmael abraham's son through hagar god promised to make both of those sons mighty nations thus both groups claim divine right to the land and to supremacy Supported by bits and pieces of history here and there, and the promises of their respective holy writings, no wonder there seems to be no way of peace and reconciliation in the Middle East. But in our text this morning, the apostle Paul makes clear that those ancient stories of the sons of Hagar and the son and, 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 uh, and Sarah have something altogether different to teach us. This history is not meant to give us a political road map to peace in the Middle East. It's meant to give us a road map to peace with God. It's meant to show us the significance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to learn this morning. Let me read the passage. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law... Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the the women represented two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Here Paul describes the two women, Sarah and Hagar, by whom the sons of Abraham were born. First there's Hagar. Here she's associated with Mount Sinai, where the law was given to Moses, and therefore with the uh, earthly city of Jerusalem. She's associated with slavery, for Hagar was a servant. She, she, her child was born by natural means of reproduction. Abraham had relations with her, and she got pregnant, had a son. Eventually, Ishmael, Hagar's son, persecuted Sarah's son, Isaac. Then there's Sarah. She was the free woman, the wife of Abraham. But she was barren and beyond her childbearing years. So her son was the child of promise, conceived by the assistance of the Holy Spirit long past the time when it was possible for Sarah to have a child. And her son Isaac was the rightful heir who was persecuted by Hagar's son Ishmael. So what do we learn? What do these two women represent? Well, Paul says that figuratively, They teach us about two covenants. The covenant of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and the new covenant established by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two covenants, the old and the new, are as different as the slave woman Hagar and her son are different from the free woman Sarah and her son. So what's the point? What is the Spirit trying to teach us here? Well, there seem to be two things, and they're pretty straightforward, but we want to spend some time on them. The first, this answers the question, how can one become a child of God? That's our first point. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. The key words here are found in verse 23. Abraham's son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. You remember the story, I suspect, God promised to give Abraham an heir, promised to make him the father of many nations. He said, I don't even have a son. God said, I'm going to give you one. So Abraham waited, and he waited, and he waited some more, and none appeared. So Abraham took matters in his own hands to make it happen. He took his wife Sarah's servant girl and got her pregnant. Thus he got himself an heir. He named him Ishmael. So in this analogy, Hagar represents natural, man-made, do-it-yourself religion. Make your own righteousness happen. Earn your status before God doing it your way. But that was not God's plan for Abraham, to do it himself. So in Genesis 17, God reminded, this is after Ishmael was born, God reminded uh, Abraham of his promise to give him a son by his wife, Sarah. And when Abraham heard this, he just fell face down and laughed, as Sarah laughed later too. In fact, Abraham begged God, don't just let those promises all apply to Ishmael but God was not interested in adjusting his plans to accommodate Abraham's impatience. God intended to do the impossible in order to keep his promise to provide Abraham an heir. So in this analogy, Sarah represents the opposite of man-made efforts to gain God's blessing. She represents the supernatural work of the Spirit of God To give life to those for whom there is no hope. You see the distinction being made in this analogy? It is not a distinction between the Arabs and the Jews. The sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. The religion of Muhammad and the religion of Judaism. No. The distinction being made here is the difference between religion human attempts to work out and gain God's favor, and the gospel, the supernatural work of the Spirit of God by which he transforms those who hear and believe in Jesus from being dead in sin to being alive with eternal life, from being guilty and under condemnation to being clean and forgiven, from being slaves of sin and self to being the children of God set free to know and serve him. The point God is making is simply that do-it-yourself religion is not enough. You must be born of the Spirit of God. Does that sound familiar? Remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a very religious man. He was a devout, observant Jew. He was the teacher of Israel. He was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, so he came to talk theology with Jesus came sneaking in at night, so no one would see him probably, to check Jesus out and figure out how to pigeonhole this strange teacher. Jesus cut through all that pretense and went right to the heart of Nicodemus's heart and said, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can even see the kingdom unless he be born again. Nicodemus thought that was absurd. How could a guy be born? How could he get back in your mother's womb? What are you talking about? And Jesus said, Jesus was relentless. He said, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. Your own efforts are never enough. In fact, they're counterproductive. You must be born of the Spirit of God. So now in Galatia, where Paul is writing this, New teachers had come since Paul planted the church there, since he came with the gospel, and people understood the gospel and believed it and were joyous. These new teachers came and they said, well, that was a good start, folks. That's good that you believe in Jesus. That's a good place to start. But hey, listen, there's the law, you know. There's all 613 commandments of the, of the law, and you need to understand those things. You need to learn those things. You need to be circumcised. You need to become an observant Jew. You need to, you, 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 you need to be begin to follow all the feasts and all those things. If you ever expect, you're going to earn God's favor. But here the apostle shoots back. You who want to be under the law, you ought to read the law. You ought to understand what it says. All Abraham's diligence to bruise an heir by his own efforts were fruitless. It only resulted in another slave, son, and centuries of hassle. God did not need Abraham's efforts. In fact, only God could do what God promised. Only by the work of God's Spirit could God produce an heir for a dried-up old barren couple. And in the same way, all your law-keeping, all your conformity to the rites of circumcision and the feast days will only enslave you to religion to have eternal life you must be born of the spirit of God and only God does that without your help God supernaturally applies to you the life and new standing purchased by Jesus through his life death and resurrection many of us grew up in the church learning the rules And being taught, though perhaps unintentionally taught nonetheless, that the way to earn God's favor, to gain God's favor, is to be diligent in keeping God's law. Folks, that will make you impressively religious, but it will not give you forgiveness and eternal life. It will make you impressively religious, but it will not give you forgiveness and eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. He died to pay the debt you owe to God. Then he rose from the dead in order to give you eternal resurrection life. Do you think you can self-generate God's forgiveness and eternal life? Are you a fool? Jesus didn't need Lazarus' help to bring him to life. God's Spirit, he doesn't need your life either, your help either. God's Spirit still gives new life through the word of the gospel, enabling you and me to believe enough to cast our dead, hopeless souls on Jesus, who saves us. Thus we are born anew by the Spirit of God, made part of God's new creation. Well, that's where it begins. But how then does God want us to live? How do we live this out? That's the second point. Live as children born of God. Live as children born of God. The Bible uses two different terms to describe this new life coming to us. The first is that we're born anew by the Spirit. He talks about that in John 3 and, and, and other places. But the other image he gives us is that we're adopted in Christ. Two two, uh, terms, two figures of speech were basically the same thing. Now, now, We don't have any human analogies uh, for the new birth. That's something we just can hardly get our minds around. But we have lots of experience with adoption. And the thing everyone knows about adoption is that on the day that a child is adopted, everything changes. Does it not? Everything changes. The child's previous life is but a fading memory. His or or her whole identity changes. And that new identity means a whole new lifestyle. So it is when we're joined to Christ, born of the Spirit, adopted into Christ. We become the children of God, and everything changes, and we begin to learn a new way of living. So our text points us to several things that change, things which describe this new way of life. I'm going to uh, pick out three of them for you. Maybe there are more here. I only got to three. First, our life has changed in that we are freed from the slavery and condemnation of the old covenant law. First change, we're freed from the slavery and condemnation of the old covenant law. I want to be very careful here. We never want to imply even that God's law is an evil thing. It cannot be. God's law reveals God's righteousness. It's His a, a revelation to us of God's holiness. So, as the apostle repeatedly does, I, I let me affirm myself today that God's law is good, not evil. Nonetheless, our text clearly calls the attempt to live the Christian life by the law a kind of slavery. I didn't come up with that term. That's what the text says. We see it in verse 24 and 25: Hagar, who represents the law, Hagar who represents the law given on Mount Sinai, produces children who are slaves. While Sarah, who represents the heavenly Jerusalem, produces children who are free. So how can the law be slavery? Well, the law is an external code. It's a measure, a perfect measure of righteousness, which we can never attain because our our efforts are dependent upon a sinful flesh. So we find ourselves obligated to do what we can never possibly do and then condemned when we fail. That's hopeless slavery, is it not? Trapped in a situation you can't change and you can never measure up and it's only going to condemn you. But the gospel brings good news. For Jesus was not limited by a sinful nature as we are. He absolutely kept the law, which showed him to be perfectly righteous. And, And now when the Spirit joins us to Jesus, his work is imputed to us. We are declared righteous in Jesus. Therefore in Christ we face no condemnation from the law, for Jesus has already paid for all of that. John Stott describes this difference between the law and the promise of the gospel this way. He says, in the law God laid the responsibility on men. And said, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But in the promise, God keeps the responsibility himself and says, I will, I will, I will, I will. In other words, Christ Jesus frees us from the law and its condemnation. So what in practice does that look like, to live as children of God, free from the law? Well, it means that we're not even trying to establish a record of righteousness on our own. We're resting in what Jesus has already done. Those are two different mindsets. It means that we do not have our minds set on, 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 keep, on keeping the law. We have our minds set on keeping step with the Spirit of Christ. It means we're not trying to fulfill an obligation to keep the rules. We're seeking to fulfill an obligation to live out the love and grace of Jesus that's been shown to us. It means we're not trying to obey the Lord well enough that he will show us his favor. It means that we understand he has shown us his favor, and we're seeking to express our gratitude in love and obedience to him. Let me just give you a homespun illustration, if I might, of the difference between living by the law and living in love and grace. Suppose you're a young woman working for a man who was tough, but fair, but tough. You guys will just have to go with me a minute, and I know you can't put yourself in this situation, but just suppose you're a young woman working in a company that has a very tough uh, boss. The boss established very careful, well-defined rules for his employees. He expected them to be followed as as a condition of employment. One day he notices you. And he begins to pursue relationship a little bit. And one thing leads to the next, and eventually he marries you. Because he loved you and made you his bride. You become his partner. All that he has is yours. So in that scenario, let me just ask you, has your relationship to his rules for the company changed at all? Are you still a servant of the rules who's measured by your performance? Or do you live in a profound freedom from your old way of life because you are married to this man who loves you? Surely you understand everything has changed. Your relationship is marriage, not employment. Your relationship is personal, not a labor contract. You're driven by love, not fear. And his acceptance of you is based on his love and commitment, not your performance. Though all your former apostles' rules may be wise and fair and tell you much about him, you're not in slavery to them anymore. They have no power to condemn you. Your relationship has been totally, radically, forever changed. Your life is about knowing and loving and cherishing this man who loved you first. In a similar way, living as the children of God means we're no longer under the slavery and condemnation of the old covenant law. As Romans 7 tells us, you died to the law that you might be married to Christ. second kind of change has taken place. Our life's changed in that we are part of a new community, part of a new community. These days, many voices from many places are speaking the importance of community. We're learning, and more and more as people's lives get isolated and uprooted, we're learning that it's not good to live alone. We're made to live in relationship, and as Christians, that we're made to live in relationship like God does, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in perfect eternal relationship. So in verses 25 and 26, our text makes a distinction between two communities. The people of the earthly Jerusalem, that's the Jewish community, which we read about throughout the whole Old Testament, and the new community, which is our mother, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new body of believers. A people reconciled to God in Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Now that may sound like an obscure distinction, but Hebrews 12 presses it with us. Uh, that, that we might know how radical a difference this is, these two communities. Let me just paraphrase what it says. It says, you've not come to Mount Sinai, impressive as the giving of the law was. You're not called to convert to Judaism and be part of that community, No. You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, sealed by his own blood. It is this new community, this city of God, which is pictured in Isaiah 54 that Paul quotes from in in verse 27. Here God promised that he's going to build a new and glorious city, not the the literal Middle East city of Jerusalem. It's a community centered in heaven where Christ is. Some members of this community are already there with him. The others of us are still scattered throughout the world as aliens and, and, and pilgrims. So while people fight over the earthly city of Jerusalem, God calls us to pull up the tent stakes and and, and make room because he's adding more people every day from every place to his eternal city. Now this community is much different than communities we know. We're used to communities built, for example, around ethnic ties. Uh, We we see that locally in the the close-knit Dutch community, which is Linden, we see it in the, in the very exclusive Sikh community here in our own county. Community built on ethnic ties. Or, or, or we know sometimes communities are built on socioeconomic status. If you say you're from Bellevue, you just said something about where you fit in the order of things, haven't you? Or some communities are based on, on a specific political points of view. For example, there aren't a lot of Tea Party people in Berkeley. Or Boulder. Or Fairhaven. But God's community transcends all those identities. It's built on a new identity of those born of the Spirit of God. Therefore it includes all kinds of folks. People from every tribe and clan and culture and color. The rich and the poor. The traditionalists and the avant-garde the former conservatives and the former liberals alike. When someone is born of the Spirit of God, may do in Christ, God's new community takes precedence over every other human connection. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism gloriously states that. I believe that the Son of God, through his Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from its beginning to its end, gathers and protects and preserves for eternal life a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. To live as the children of God, means we're part of a radical new community whose focus is where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Folks, that means that your ties to a poor black Christian family living in the inner city are more profound than your ties to your unbelieving cousin who looks just like you and lives down the block. Really that means we cannot ignore it when our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered in Iraq. That means that it makes perfect sense for us to send our best and our brightest away from home, to the ends of the earth, to build this community of Christ, whether it be in Burma or Japan or wherever else God might be pleased to send our children. To live as the children of God means we're part of a radically new, eternal community. Finally, one more thing it means. Our life has changed in that as the children of God, we're no longer surprised when we're persecuted by those who hate Jesus. There's a strange but unbiblical form of Christianity floating around these days. The idea that more than everything else, God wants us to be happy. And so anything that makes us sad could not be God's will. Indeed, some seem to believe that since we belong to him, we have certain rights. We have the right to live free of terrible trouble that others experience. We have the right to feel good, to have enough to eat, to not be poor, to not have to work too hard. We have the right to live in peace, to not be harassed or opposed by by people who might hate us. Really? Folks, there's no such Christianity. There never has been and there isn't today. The apostles warn us on every hand that that as people... Hated and opposed Jesus, they're going to hate and oppose you who believe in Jesus. And to this day, history bears that out. That's what we read in verse 29. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, and it is the same now. So, how do we deal? with those who persecute us. That's a big subject, and we won't get climb all the way into it this morning, but the Bible has a lot to say about it. Just some examples. Uh, Peter says, don't be surprised. First of all, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're undergoing. Jesus says, don't seek revenge. Leave it in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it in my hands. The Apostle Paul instructs Timothy... Don't get into quarrels. Gently instruct people in hopes that God will free them from Satan's snare. But here in Galatians 4, the apostle Paul gives us another kind of instruction. As Abraham made Hagar and her son leave, when they created disruption and mocked Isaac, the son of promise. So in Galatia, Paul seems to be insisting that the church not put up with false teachers who in the promotion of the law mock simple faith in Christ. There are a lot of different situations we might be in. We need the wisdom of God to know how to handle persecution and opposition. But we ought never be surprised When those who reject the gospel sent themselves against us, they set themselves against Jesus, you know. Through it all, we're called to never forget who we are. We are in Christ, the children of God. So live like that. Well, this is a difficult passage. Frankly, I've conveniently avoided it for almost two months here. But difficult or not, it is an important passage Truth. There is a radical difference between living under the old covenant law and living in Christ. Seeking to win God's favor by keeping the law is not going to do it. Indeed, that's a different gospel. You must be born of the Spirit of God. But we're not just graciously born of the Spirit and then left to work it out by law-keeping either. No, having been born of the Spirit, we're now to live as reborn children of God. And that means living free of slavery and condemnation of the law. It means living as part of a new community into which we've been called And it means no longer being surprised when we're called to suffer for Christ. God, give us grace to live that way, to understand who we are, and to live accordingly. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for your word that stretches our minds to understand.